All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. As I said, before we get to the resurrection, we have to talk a little bit about the death. Uh, There can be no resurrection without a death. And so this morning, we're going to kind of go through some stuff. We're going to try and and, and, and briefly talk about the death so we can get to the resurrection, get to the real meat of the the message this morning. In, In John chapter 19, we see um, Jesus go through some of his trials and ultimately to the point of crucifixion, that, that he is, has, has been found guilty in the eyes of the people there, and, and they are going to crucify him. It's interesting, this idea of crucifixion, of, of a cross. Today, I think in our day and age, um, it, we, we don't fully grasp what took place. Um, the idea of, of capital punishment, of, of death, isn't necessarily foreign to us, but it's much different today than it was back then. Today in our modern times, when, when this occurs, we make it a much more private ordeal. We, we've, we've made um, the idea of execution um, much quicker and to a certain extent much less painful. During ancient times, it was much, much different. The idea of, of execution was very public. It was almost like a carnival-like um, experience. And when they were going to execute somebody, they wanted to make sure they felt the pain. This idea of hanging somebody on a cross, according to the Greek historians, came from the Persians. Um, Alexander the Great, one of those names that we've become very familiar with in history, adopted the idea of crucifixion. And then his, his generals that came after him followed in his footsteps. The Romans eventually get it, and then the Romans take it, and they find ways of prolonging the agony, prolonging the experience And so when somebody was put on a cross, they saved that form of execution for the worst of criminals. Prior to an individual even going to the cross, typically they would go through some form of of, of beating. And when we read in John 19, we see Jesus Christ goes through the exact same thing. They would, in that process of the beating, they would determine how long they wanted that individual to last on a cross. We've heard the story before probably of the, the whip and the cat of nine tails, and, and typically it would have been a, like a leather whip with the different strands. And if they wanted that individual to stay on a cross, they would just keep the leather as it was with nothing attached to it, and they would whip them. If they wanted the experience on the cross to be much quicker, They would begin to braid stone, sheep bone, into that leather. So as they began to crack the whip over the back of the individual, the victim, the stone would begin to bruise the skin, welt it, and that bone would tear into the skin and rip the flesh. That experience in and of itself killed many individuals to the point where they wouldn't even get to the cross. 
Jesus, a man of great innocence, perfect, holy, never committed a single sin. Pilate, caught in the middle of something, realizing that that Jesus had done nothing to warrant this, yet trying to please this angry mob thinks, well, maybe we lash him 39 times. That will be enough. They'll see how disfigured he is. They'll see how beaten and broken he is. If we just do this, maybe the crowd will turn and accept that as enough punishment. And so they do. They wail him 39 times. And they march Jesus in front. And it was not enough for the angry mob. As I said last week, although the crowd may not have been the exact same crowd that was there on the triumphal entry that was, cry, that was crying and shouting out Hosanna, there certainly was a lot of the same people. This is a time of Passover. That night, the, the night that Jesus would die on the cross was the actual day of Passover, the celebration. And that crowd, those people, would begin to cry out, crucify him crucify him and so they put a sign over the neck of Jesus which they would do for all the criminals stating what he had done the reason for his execution and Pilate puts on that sign king of the Jews to which the Jewish leaders were upset. They, they, they wanted him to change that sign. No, no, it cannot be that. Say he is the man who claims to be the king of the Jews. By this time, Pilate was done. He was, he was tired of this game, and he left it as it was. And so this sign is hanging on the neck of Jesus, and Jesus is given the task of carrying that cross to where he would ultimately be crucified. Once they get to Calvary, Golgotha, the area that they would be crucifying him, they took nails and drove them into the palms of his hand, outstretched. That wasn't necessarily the normal way of execution on a cross. Typically, during their days, they would tie them with ropes. History says that that people could live up to seven days on a cross if they were hanged by ropes, if they were tied to the cross. They chose, with Jesus, to nail him to a cross. It would drive those spikes through his hands. press his feet towards the base of the cross and again drive a spike through his feet. And he would hang. By this time, they had stripped him of all of his clothing. This is a spectacle. They wanted the people to see this that was their deterrent from these crimes. 
So they chose this form of execution on a cross because it was great torture. It was painful. It was agony. It was also humiliating. And here Jesus hangs, having done nothing wrong, completely innocent. John 19, verses 25 through 30, to me is an amazing section. The Bible tells us that his own mother, Mary, is at the base of the cross. She has witnessed this. She has witnessed the the beatings. I remember... um, Leading up to Christmas, we did our Christmas little series kind of on the journey to Bethlehem. We talked one, one morning about Mary. That same Mary that, that held that baby in her hands, the Son of God. That same Mary that would be up at night with the crying. The same, that same Mary that would, would see this child go from a baby to a toddler, to a teenager, to a young man. mother that loved her child sat at the base of the cross looking at a face that she could probably barely recognize Jesus looks down to her and a tender moment verse 26 he says, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, and that disciple is John. Behold your mother. Here Jesus, one of his last actions before giving up his spirit and death, looks to his friend John and says, take care of my mom. And then he asks for a drink. It's amazing because we see there it says, um, verse twenty-eight. And after this, knowing all that was, all that was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. That little passage there has this tremendous imagery of Passover. That hyssop branch. In a few hours from this occurrence, those those families would go back to their homes and they would celebrate this season, this feast of Passover. Go all the way back to Exodus. The children of Israel are taking away out of slavery. And and, and before that, um, this whole ordeal with, with Moses and Pharaoh, and if you guys remember, the whole idea of Passover... The death angel would come, and, and, and if he went over a home, and if, if there was blood on the doorposts, he would pass over. But for those who failed to put the blood on the doorpost, the firstborn son would die. And so going 
on, there was this, this season of Passover. And to this, in this time, according to their tradition, what they would do is they would take a hyssop branch and, and they had their sacrificial lamb. And they would take the hyssop branch, they would dip it in blood, and they would use that to paint their doorposts with the blood. And here we see our Savior, the perfect Lamb, who is beaten and bloody. And they're dipping the hyssop branch and giving it to Him. And after he drinks, he cries out, it is finished. (laughs) It is finished. I have completed what my Father has sent me to do. It is finished. And I want you guys to notice this. I, I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to underline this. So right after he says it is finished, it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Underline gave up his spirit. Jesus Christ did not die a martyr's death. No man killed Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ willingly gave up his spirit for you and for me. Because of the time of the season, Passover was that night. They had to rush through what would happen next. And and we see this. They went through, and the the Romans were trying to be somewhat tender to the Jewish traditions, the Jewish um, religious practices. And so they they wanted these men off of the cross before the celebration would occur. And so the soldiers went by, and they they were going to break the legs. And if they broke the legs, it would cause death to happen much, much quicker. So they go and they break the two other individuals that were hanging next to Jesus, their legs. And the guard goes to approach Jesus to break his legs. And he realizes that Jesus had died. And he took his spear and pierced his side. And as he pulled the spear out, out came blood and water. A signal that he was dead. Jesus Christ had died. He had paid the sacrifice. We go down to John um, 38 through 42, and we see two other individuals come out of this scene, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and then Nicodemus. And if we think back to Nicodemus, the same Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, they come. The Bible tells us that they were secret disciples of Jesus, secret followers of Jesus. Typically, what would happen to those who were executed once they were taking off their cross, they'd be thrown into either an unmarked grave or more typically just thrown into the garbage heap. They did not want that for their friend, their rabbi, their teacher, their savior. And so Joseph and Nicodemus take Jesus off the cross and they're going to take him into the tomb and no doubt by the time Jesus was pulled off the cross his body had already become somewhat stiff and so Joseph and 
Nicodemus probably had to massage the arms and get him into a position in which they could begin to wrap his body. They would take a cloth and they would wrap it around his head, between his jaw and the top of his head to keep his mouth closed until the rigor mortis would set in. According to the Jewish burial tradition, they, they had to wrap the body in a, a mix. In a, they would take these linen cloths and they would soak it with myrrh, aloe, and other spices. And they would wrap the body. Time was quickly passing. They had to get Jesus into a tomb quickly because the Passover celebration was going to occur according to the traditions of, of the Old Testament. They had to get that body into a grave. And so they were probably able to complete the task, which is why the women would come back the first day of the week. So they quickly wrap Jesus up. They take him to a tomb, place him in the tomb. Stones rolled there. And Roman guards are sent to watch over this tomb. Again, when we look in verse 40 through 42, we see some more imagery. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest would, would get rid of his priestly fancy robes, and he would put on the, the very regular robes of the other priests. You go back and you can read this in Leviticus 16. And what he would do is he would go then into the veil. He would go into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And if that high priest was undefiled, he would come out. But if he was defiled, he would die. That's why when he went in, there was a rope tied around his ankle and a bell that they could hear. And so the crowds would wait in the the courtyard to see if the high priest would come out. And if the high priest came out, there would be this jubilant praise. A party would go on in the courtyard. Here at the end of John chapter 19, we have a similar situation. The high priest, Jesus Christ, has gone into the tomb. The blood has been sprinkled. What would happen? And the exciting happens in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, or the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the, out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Mary Magdalene goes, her and when you read the other accounts, the other um, gospels, Mary was with a few other ladies. She gets to the tomb apparently first, realizes that the tomb is empty. Initial thought is someone stole the body. She runs to find Peter and John. We know today that Christ had risen. We have the fortune of 
looking at the Bible and reading the Bible and knowing what occurred. Sometimes Mary gets slammed. She lacked faith. We need to be very careful about that. Have we been in the same position? And we'll see with Peter and John. Even his closest disciples, even though Jesus repeatedly told them he would come back, he would raise from the dead, they did not understand what he talked about. They did not believe he would come back to life. So Mary sees that the tomb is empty. She runs back, finds Peter and John. Peter and John now run to the temple, or run to the tomb. Verse uh, 3 says, So Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple is John. And they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. So John gets to the tomb first. I don't know if there was this big competition between Peter and John, and John has the opportunity to write this, so he's saying, I'm faster than Peter. I don't know. But nonetheless, the Bible tells us they both take off. John gets there first. He does not go into the tomb. He looks. What's interesting in this passage right here is that we see the word saw three different times. Our language and the Greek language are much different. In the Greek language, they have different words for different... Today, when we say saw, I saw something. Here, in Greek, though, there's three different words that are used with three different meanings. Here, John observed, the Greek word is blepo. He observed that there was something, and he, he looks and he sees that, yes, Jesus is gone, but he does not go in. Peter, I love Peter. He reminds me of myself a little bit. Verse 6 says, Then Peter came, following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. So Peter just, he gets there, probably huffing and puffing, but he gets there, pushes everybody out of the way and goes straight into the tomb. And he looks, and this word saw is thereo, which means to investigate, to look. We get the word theory from he looks and he investigates. When we look at the Greek structure of the words here, the idea that's left that these, these linens are left there, it's not that they were all nice, neat, and flat. The idea is the, the, it almost looks like a cocoon. The form of the cloth is still in the form as if the body was still there. Three days had passed. The myrrh, the, the aloe, the resin certainly had begun to dry. And then John comes in. Verse 8 says, And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. Saw. Ideo. Idea. It clicked. He saw and he believed and he realized Jesus was no longer there. And the face cloth which um, had been on Jesus' head, not lying in the linen cloth, but folded up in the place by itself. That, that linen that had 
rested under his chin and on top of his head was folded up. See, what would occur even in this day after, as, as word begins to spread that Jesus wasn't there, that the, the tomb was empty, people began to think, well, somebody came and stole the body. It's practically impossible. First, the disciples are all still terrified and scared. They're not even all together. We, we know this because Mary goes and she finds Peter and John only. The body couldn't have been stolen. If you think about it, if someone were to steal something, they would have taken everything with them. If they didn't want to take the lens with them, they would have had to take them off. The linens were already starting to harden up. It would have been almost virtually impossible for them to take the linens apart. And they certainly wouldn't have taken the top portion from the head and, nice, and folded it up nicely and laid it next to it. Mary, um, in verse 11, says, um, so what ends up happening is Peter and John, then they, they realize Jesus is not there. They take off and they go back home. The Bible doesn't tell us why they went back home. I have no idea. If I were to speculate, part of it may be that we know that Mary was with John, which would have been back at home. Maybe they was, John was going back to tell Mary, Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. I don't know. That's purely speculation. But nonetheless, they go back home. Verse 11 says, But Mary uh, stood weeping outside the tomb as she wept. She stopped or stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Then she said to, or they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. This to me fascinates me. Mary looks in there. She's crying. She's upset. She looks in, and there are two angels in an empty tomb. And Mary doesn't even blink at angels. She is so focused on her Lord missing. She is so worried about where Jesus is. She's crying, has no regard for angels. And I love Mary's response to them when they say, why are you crying? She says, they have taken away my Lord. In my Bible, I have my circled. They've taken away my Lord the only thing in my life that matters. They have taken him away. Verse 14 says, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? The same thing that the angel said. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. 
What amazing interaction. Jesus is there. Her eyes are full of tears. She is so emotionally wrecked because her Lord, my Lord, has been taken from her. Here he is in front of her. The one she's weeping over, the one she's crying over, the one she so desperately wants is in front of her. She thinks it's the gardener. This interaction that she has with Jesus so much reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many of us are familiar with it. Many of us probably had that chapter read at our weddings. Love bears all. (laughs) She goes to Jesus thinking it's the gardener saying, where did you take him? Tell me where he is. I will get him myself. I will carry him back. Love bears all things. I don't care where he is. I just want him back. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. In one word, in one word, she realized it was Jesus. The moment he uttered her name, she realized It was Jesus, her master, her savior, her Lord. And she goes and she grabs a hold of his feet. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So overcome with emotion, those tears of sorrow are now tears of joy. The title of the message today is A New Day Dawning. That morning, a new day dawned for Mary the disciples, and for you and I. See, we don't celebrate somebody who died. I don't know about you. I enjoy reading. I really like reading autobiographies, reading about people. See, if you read autobiographies, though, typically most autobiographies end when the person dies. Gospel of John, John's autobiography or biography of Jesus doesn't end with Jesus in a tomb. It ends with Jesus coming back from the dead. It ends with our Savior who went through a horrible punishment physically, emotionally. He bore not only the pain, he bore our sin. The sheer fact that he had to bear the sin of all of creation pales in comparison to the whipping 
and execution physically that he went through. He took all of that upon his shoulders. And that was not enough to stop him. He died. Death itself could not stop Jesus, the Son of God. Because he came back. He conquered death. And every Easter we get to celebrate an empty cross in an empty tomb. We get to celebrate a Savior who is alive. You guys understand that? We get to celebrate Jesus Christ who is living, breathing today. Alive. At the right hand of God. Petitioning for us. That's who we celebrate. That's what we celebrate. That's why Easter is such an amazing holiday. Because we celebrate a risen Savior. Without, without Easter Sunday, without an empty tomb, our faith means nothing. Nothing. But the moment Jesus Christ came back to life, the moment he conquered death, it became complete. He did that for you and for I, for me. He went to the cross for everyone in this room. And he stood victoriously for everyone in this room. It's an amazing holiday. It's an amazing time of year. This week, as I was working on the sermon, thinking, wow, this is our first Easter at Redemption Hill. <laughs> and the first Easter, I mean, we've, the, the, the neat thing about it, your first year is everything you do is a first, right? So you can celebrate. We've had all sorts of firsts. We had our first six-month anniversary two weeks ago, right? So we, we celebrate everything here, all right? That's cool. Um, but I'll be honest with you, as I was thinking about this, I was like, wow, this is, this is big. I mean, this is for me to stand before you on an Easter morning. I, 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 last night, just, I, I couldn't even settle down <laughs> thinking about what to say, how to say it. At the end of the day, bring honor and glory to him. I wrote something in my Bible that just happens to fit in with this passage. And it fits in with our church. This is our name, Redemption Hill Church. Highlights the climax of God's redemptive story. God displayed His stunning love and radical grace all people on a hill outside of Jerusalem through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some 2,000 years later, we, Redemption Hill Church, desire to be a community of people who declare and display the redemptive 
redemption found in Jesus through loving God and loving our neighbors. See, this right here, what we celebrate today, what we thought about on Friday, that's the basis of what we do. That's who we are. That's what we celebrate. What drives me and compels me as a pastor, but hopefully more as a person. One of the things I pray every night about is that I want God to use me, Chad Clement, as a vehicle to see souls saved and lives changed. That's our mission for those who are part of the Redemption Hill family. But more importantly, for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that ought to be your mission. That we exist to see soul saved and lives changed. We glorify Him through that. Otherwise, the moment we accepted Him as our Savior, He'd take us home. It's the reason why He leaves us here. It's why He left the disciples There'd be no celebration, though, without the cross. We talked about the triumphal entry last week. We talked a little bit about how the highs and lows of life. It's easy sometimes for us to praise God when things are going really, really well, isn't it? That's not a big stretch for us. But when times get difficult... When things don't seem to be going the way we want them to go, what do we do then? I've pondered a lot in recent months in my own relationship with God. Do I love Jesus because of what he does? Or do I love Jesus because of who he is? Because if I love Jesus strictly for what he does, I'm no better than the rest of the crowds. That's what happened. That's why the people turned on him. They got upset because he wasn't doing enough. As soon as it didn't work the way they wanted it, they turned. Do I love him because of what he does or who he is? Do I trust him in those difficult days? Does it mean they're easy? But guys, if, if he could conquer death, if he could conquer an empty tomb, do you realize he can conquer anything in our lives? no matter what we go through in our lives. It doesn't mean it has a happy ending all the time. But I need to trust Him for who He is, not necessarily what He does. I need to trust Him because He did go to a cross for me. 
But more importantly, he conquered that cross for me. And he conquered that cross for you. That's what Easter's all about. It's about a Savior who loves us. The book of Romans is beautiful. I love when Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us, for you, for me. He demonstrated his love for us. And that while we're yet sinners, while we're still messed up, while we're still dirty, while we're still unclean, while we're still sinning in all wretchedness, God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know about you, but I'm eternally thankful that God didn't wait for me to get it right until he acted. We talk about grace. At our dirtiest part, moment in life, he bore that for us. Every sin that we've committed in the past Every sin that we commit in the present and every sin that we commit in the future has been nailed to a cross. John 19, 30, Jesus himself cried out, it is finished. The literal translation that would be us saying, paid in full. It's been paid. I read a story a while back about a young man who was about to graduate from high school. He came from a fairly wealthy family, and every day on his way to school, they would drive by this dealership, and there was this sports car out front. And he kept telling his dad, that's what I want for graduation, like every 18-year-old would probably ask their dad. And they would just drive by, drive by, and it was well within the family's means to be able to provide that. And that's all this boy would talk about. It's all he wanted. Graduation occurs, has his cap and gown on, and walks across the stage. And after the ceremony, they go back home. And his dad gives him a little present. The boy excitingly rips open the paper. To his dismay, he looks and he sees a Bible. Upset, mad at his dad. This is the best you can give me is a Bible? Of all the things that you have, I told you what I wanted. I only asked for one thing. In rage, the boy threw the box down on the ground and left the home. 
Years would pass. No communication between him and his father. Young boy grows into a man, becomes very successful, has a family, has children, big home, everything you could want. His father's getting old. So the son decides he's going to reach out to his dad, try and see if he can repair the relationship. Before he has the opportunity, he gets word that his dad had died. Everything the father had had been left to his son. Son goes back home and begins to go through his belongings. To, he's in his dad's study and he finds that box, opens it up, and that Bible is still there, still looks brand new. Begins to thumb through it and comes across a verse that's highlighted. Matthew 7, verse 11 it says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And as he's reading that verse, something falls out of the back of the Bible. It's a key. The name of that dealership and a tag that said paid in full. That young man ran in life, got mad, avoided his father, but rage set in because he didn't think he was getting what he wanted when it was there for him the entire time. This Easter morning, I stand before you telling each and every one of you, it is finished. It has been completed. We are all sinners. Every single one of us. We all deserve eternity in hell. That's what we deserve. Every one of us deserve it. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how good looking you are. None of that makes sense. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are. Every one of us have sinned. Every one of us deserve eternity in hell. But something happened almost 2,000 years ago that changed it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It's everyone. <laughs> everyone. As far as I know, the world, the word world means everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. His one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. It is finished. 
it's been paid in full. The keys to the sports car are here. He's trying to hand them to you. Will you accept it? Let's pray.